Hello, and welcome to our podcast on private placement life insurance and its related products. My name is Gregory Novak. I'm a partner in the financial services group at Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders. It's a law firm uh, of national scope. And I am joined today by one of my colleagues, Justin Brown, and two industry professionals, Brian Dibak and Harvey Feinberg. And I'm going to ask each of my uh, presenters today to please introduce themselves. Sure, Greg. Uh, my name is Justin Brown. I'm a trust and estates attorney at Troutman Pepper in the Private Wealth Management Group. And I I work with clients on their estate planning, on estate administration, and estate litigation matters. Hi, Greg. Thank you. Um, I'm Brian Dibak. I'm the owner of the PPLI Group, uh, 38 years in the insurance and estate planning industry, helping high net worth people and families and family offices to avoid that tremendous tax bite by the federal estate tax bill down the road. Um, and for today, we have PPLI, which appears to be the best solution I've seen in my 40 years in the business. Thanks, Greg. And also Harvey. Harvey, introduce yourself, please. Thank you, Harvey Feinberg. Thank you, Greg. Uh, and I work alongside Brian and providing the services and the solutions that Brian mentioned. So our topic today is the use of private placement life insurance as both an estate planning and uh, tax planning tool. And we are recording this podcast on November 16th, where the presidential election has not been finally declared, although all indications are that the challenger, Vice President Biden, will become president in January. But also at this time, we are sitting at a crossroads in the state of Georgia, where there will be a runoff election in January, specifically January 5th, to fill two seats in the United States Senate. And as it currently stands, the Republicans hold 50 seats and the Democrats hold 48. If the Democrats were to win both seats in Georgia, that would mean a 50-50 tie would be broken by the president-elect, uh, vice president-elect, excuse me, Kamala Harris, sitting as president of the Senate. If, on the other hand, one of those seats goes to the Republicans, then Mitch McConnell will continue to be the leader of the Senate, Senate majority leader, and therefore will have a significant role in legislation that comes forward. Why is this important? Because a lot of the backdrop to our PPLI discussion is tied to the gift and estate taxes. These are transfer taxes, not income taxes. So it's a balance sheet tax that is imposed uh, when one dies. And in order to avoid people avoiding the estate tax, the gift tax was established and it's a unified taxation system. So Justin, Explain how this works and why, if there were, for example, a Democratic majority in the Senate, um, there might be a planning opportunity between now and December 31st. Thanks, Greg. Uh, the, the way the estate tax works is that um, there's a tax on an individual's assets when they die. It's a, it's a tax based upon a snapshot of what the person owned on the date of their death. 
And in 2020, to the extent an individual's assets exceed $11.58 million, then there will be an estate tax, and the estate tax rate is 40%. So as Greg had said, the gift tax is tied to the estate tax, and it's a unified exemption. So to the extent that somebody doesn't use their exemption during their lifetime, they have that exemption remaining at their death. Now, from a planning perspective, um, one of the things that we need to be considering is that barring any change in tax policy, the estate tax exemption will rise to about $11.7 million next year. Now, Greg makes the, the astute comment of, well, what happens if the Democrats take over those two Senate seats in Georgia and uh, Kamala Harris is the tie-breaking vote? Well, in that situation, there is talk that there is potential tax legislation on the horizon where the Democrats would be looking to potentially reduce the estate tax exemption from $11.7 million to something under 11.7, maybe 5 million like it was in the Obama era, maybe three and a half before the, the Bush era. Um, we, we simply don't know what the estate tax exemption would be. So what a lot of people are doing right now is they are planning to use up some or all of their gift tax exemption, their $11.58 million exemption in two, 2020, to get those assets out of their estate and so that the appreciation on those assets can continue to grow estate tax-free. So let me interrupt you for one second there, Justin. Um, when most people think of taxable gifts or gifts under the exemption, they're thinking of actual transfers of the full title of cash or stock or property to the objects of their bounty, their children or grandchildren. But there is also a possibility that the gift tax and or estate tax would be applicable to certain transfers in trust, or if you know someone were to purchase an insurance policy, for example. And so there are mechanisms that can be used, correct, where you would transfer assets, use up those exemptions, but nevertheless still retain some ability to have access to the assets for the benefit of the family or the individual who's the grantor. Is that correct? That is. There is a, a planning strategy that allows you to do something like that. So before getting into that, let's just take a, a quick step backwards. Um, and Section 2042 of the Internal Revenue Code provides that life insurance proceeds, the death benefit, is includable in an individual's estate if they have incidents of ownership over that policy. So if they own the policy, if they can control the beneficiary designations of the policy, if they can borrow against the policy, or if they can use the policy as collateral. Now, one planning strategy that some people do is they give away that life insurance policy to a trust, and they give up all incidents of ownership over that policy. Now, is and that what, a gift tax, taxable transfer? Yes. So when you give a policy to a trust, the value of that gift is roughly equal to the interpolated terminal reserve of that policy. So there is some exemption that is going to be used, some gift tax exemption or some generation skipping transfer tax exemption that is going to be used to transfer the policy into the trust. But that exemption is significantly lower than the death benefit. So we're leveraging the exemption 
to get that death benefit out of one's estate. But the point is we have 11.5 or so million dollars worth of interpolated terminal reserve that could be transferred before the end of the year and potentially into the future. But the planning, the real planning issue here is through the end of the year. Now, Justin, what would happen if somebody made a transfer, but Congress lowered that exemption amount in a, you know, a statutory change next year? Would that somehow make these gifts retroactively taxable? So the answer to that, Greg, is that it depends. It depends upon when Congress makes the, the statute retroactive. The thought is that Congress is very unlikely to make it retroactive beyond 2021, back into 2020. And there are many people who believe that such a retroactive application would be unconstitutional. So if an individual made a gift in 2020, then it's probably safe that there is not going to be any retroactive reduction of a gift tax exemption in 2020. In addition, the Internal Revenue Service has put out guidance to say that if you have made a gift and if you have used up some of your exemption, the IRS can't claw back that exemption in a subsequent year when you die. So if you use $11 million worth of exemption in 2020, and if Congress changes that exemption to $5 million in 2021, then that $6 million difference will not be subject to tax in 2021 or in future years um, for gift tax purposes or for estate tax purposes. So, so that seems eminently fair and it makes sense. Um, just off the top of your head, J Justin, how much revenue does the estate and gift tax generate for the U.S. Treasury? Are we talking about billions and billions of dollars or a relatively small amount? Yeah, I don't know the exact amount, but in the scheme of revenue, it is a very, very small amount of revenue. Um, there are so few actual taxable estates of estate tax returns that are filed each year that it has truly become a tax for the wealthy. So let's toggle off of that because the product that we're going to talk today is, in fact, designed for um, the ultra ultra high net worth, people who wish to use insurance, not just to transfer some amount for estate or gift taxes, but also because they are transferring the death benefit. So private placement life insurance and private placement variable annuities have been around since Congress changed the Internal Revenue Code to adopt Section 817H, and that's at least 40 years ago. But traditionally, the life insurance component that is required to drive private placement life insurance has been kept at a minimum. Why? Because people were using the life insurance product as an investment vehicle that allowed the accumulation on a pre-tax basis, the buildup of the value inside the policy, and a distribution either at death, which was subject to the exclusion that Justin just identified, or it's not the death benefit if we're using the variable annuity product, um, the income would come out under the annuity rules of Section 72 of the Internal Revenue Code, essentially allowing the recovery of basis in proportion to the total value of the account. In either way, the real value of these policies was you were uh, purchasing a separate 
account of the insurance company policy. So it's isolated from the general risks of the general account of the insurance policy. That's a very important consideration. And then secondly, the insurance policy, assuming you followed certain restrictions, such as that the investment was in a, a properly diversified fashion, and if it was in a fund, it was an insurance-dedicated fund, and assuming that the investor did not have investor control over the policy or the investment decisions, you ended up with these income tax deferral benefits. Now, these types of investment vehicles are considered securities based on the variable life insurance case, which came out in the 1950s before I was born. But the reality is when you are creating one of these things, you have to follow Regulation D, you have to deal with the Investment Company Act of 1940, and you are also worried about the diversification and investor control rules that are imposed by the Internal Revenue Code income tax section in order to derive a benefit that Justin just identified under the estate and the gift tax. So with that background, I'm going to ask Harvey to please discuss the current status of PPLI. It's designed as a tax efficient method to invest, as well as what has changed and why we are now seeing uh, policies that are being supersized. Harvey. Okay, thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Um, you know, you, you you covered a lot of ground there. Um, so I'm going to you know take us through the um, PPLI as it is today. You know, and you know, keeping in mind the considerations with the new regime coming in, um, there's certainly a lot to think about. The private placement life insurance is really very simple. You take a taxable investment portfolio. You put it inside this structure, and you know you never pay tax again on the growth. So basically, it, it, it is and it functions like an insurance contract. Now, if that's all it did, you would think that would be enough. The cash value grows tax-free, just like any other cash value life insurance you may own. The major difference is the cash value that usually sits with the insurance carrier in the general account is now with an investment advisor. So you have the multitude of investment advisors and pretty much the same investments. So all we did is, you know, is we took, you know, from your left pocket, which is the tax inefficient, and put it in your right pocket, which is tax-free. So far, we have life insurance inside of the PPLI structure with your cash value managed by a financial advisor. I think we could all agree an advisor is going to deliver better returns than the insurance company. But there's one more thing very important in the uh, private placement life insurance. Most wealthy families have life insurance as part of their portfolio. The premiums are now paid with after-tax dollars. But inside a PPLI structure, the premiums are paid with the cash buildup, which is pre-tax dollars. All this at a fraction of the cost compared to the tax liability. So, Greg, you could see why high net worth families and family offices are turning to private placement life insurance, tax-free growth, pre-tax premiums. Today, any family purchasing significant amounts of life insurance outside of this structure is really leaving millions of dollars of their estate to the wind. 
Um, Brian, you know, will discuss, you know, the today's PPLI structures. So I'll just turn it back to you now, Greg. All right, thanks, Harvey. So we are dealing with a structure that has been around, but what we have seen is a re-emphasis on the insurance component and increasing the debt benefit. So I'm going to ask Brian to, to kick in here. What has changed? Why before were we limited to a certain dollar amount of coverage, but now we are seeing whole life insurance policies being written with two, three, four, five times those maximums that we previously had seen? Thank you, Greg. My favorite topic to talk about. And the most exciting thing I've seen in my 40 years in the business. Quite simply, um, private placement always was done by one company or another company, and they used what's called facultative reinsurance. Facultative reinsurance is insurance purchased in the reinsurance market. It's yearly renewable term, very low cost initially, and that cost goes much higher and higher each and every year. But it's very simple to obtain, provided to all the big carriers, Prudential, Zurich, uh, Mass Mutual, they all purchase reinsurance in the reinsurance market. And that's how private placement always did it. What we've done is we've supercharged the private placement structure. We've done it with something that we call private mortality coverage. And private mortality goes to any number of 50 direct writers of insurance all the name brands that we're all used to, and we purchased the pure death benefit coverage at the lowest guaranteed rate possible in this country at this time, in the form of guaranteed universal life. The difference over time between the costs of the facultative reinsurance and the guaranteed universal life are tremendous. Tremendous, almost staggering numbers. In addition, because the cost of that facultative reinsurance increased so rapidly, in previous iterations of private placement, over time, the pure death benefit coverage would get lowered and lowered and lowered each year, and you would just be left with those initial investment dollars. Now, private mortality coverage version, you keep the low guaranteed cost life insurance. By keeping that life insurance, you're allowed to make much, much larger deposits. So not only do you have guaranteed low cost insurance, but you have the ability to put large amounts of additional dollars in, which as Harvey discussed, are going to grow in a tax-free insurance wrapper. All right, so Brian, okay. let me interrupt you for one second. You've, you've thrown around a term which, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer and a financial services professional, and to be honest, I don't know if I understand what facultative reinsurance is versus uh, some form of uh, guaranteed uh, universal life insurance. So what exactly does facultative reinsurance mean? And give me a practical example. So facultative reinsurance means you go to Prudential Life, for instance, 
and you want to purchase a private placement structure, they go out to one of these very large reinsurance companies. Reinsurance companies take on large risks that traditional insurance companies are not willing to take. And they provide a yearly renewable term. We're all familiar with that. That's traditional term insurance. It's very low cost the first few years and increases each and every year. It's also not guaranteed. Now, the reason companies always use this is that their purpose of doing private placement was just to accumulate assets under management to accumulate those assets in a tax-free environment. The gentleman who designed private mortality coverage realized that we could accomplish the same thing. We could accomplish the growth of assets in a tax-free environment, but instead of paying the high costs of this facultative reinsurance and then just letting it go, we could purchase a low-cost, guaranteed, competitively priced life insurance so that the dollars allocated towards the insurance portion of this private placement would actually work well for the client and their family for many, many years to come. Now, there's another aspect to our private placement and to the private mortality coverage. In traditional private placement, there are maybe 50 or 60 investment choices, which is a tremendous number compared to the option of just investing your dollars with a major insurance carrier. And that was very attractive. What we've done is we've opened the marketplace even more. We've opened the marketplace, so we have in excess of a 1,000 investment advisors, hedge funds, private equity, real estate funds, credit funds, where clients can have their own investment advisor that they've been using for years. And they can have that investment advisor put on our platform and continue to invest their money in the type of interesting, deep thinking ways that they've been doing all along. We have almost an unlimited expanse. Yes. Let me interrupt there for a second, Brian, just so that our listeners are clear on this. Um, while that is absolutely true that the platform can accommodate advisors of many different products in order to comply with the tax requirements and avoid current income taxation, it is necessary to meet the investor control limitations, meaning that there has to be a, a one-way information wall between the investor and the advisor. The advisor can give information, but the investor cannot be able to influence the decisions and the investments being made by the advisor. And then the second very important point is if the advisor is going to structure something like in the form of a, um, a private placement fund, that fund must be insurance dedicated, meaning only general and separately managed accounts of insurance companies can own an interest in the fund. And it cannot be available to retail investors through direct investment without going through an insurance policy. 
Sorry to interrupt, Brian, but I thought it was important for No, no, to absolutely. I take those two things for granted because those two things are at the basis and core of our strategy. The private mortality coverage is the most conservative private placement offering available in the marketplace. Yes, we have a vast number, almost unlimited investment choices, but we also have a huge compliance team. And their purpose is to do exactly what you started this portion of the conversation with, to make sure that there is no investor control. But what a client can do is he can choose which we would hope if he's got, our clients have very, very significant assets with their investment advisors. And most of them are pretty happy. They've, they've done things for a long period of time and accomplished a lot for our clients. So the client does need to turn over control to the investment advisor. And the investment advisor makes the investment decisions as he sees best suited for that particular client. But the option to use different investment advisors is almost unlimited. There are very few investment advisors at the top investment houses that have not been allowed to be on our platform. Insurance dedicated funds, an even more simple way to get the advantages of PPLI. There are a tremendous number of these funds at places like Alliance Bernstein, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley. All of these investment houses have a large number of insurance-dedicated funds on our platform. I guess in the few minutes that we have left, who is a perfectly well-suited candidate for the creation of a product like this, number one? And number two, what are the costs associated with the creation of the structure, the creation of the fund, and the insurance placement um, using the products that you are talking about in order to execute on the strategy? Terrific. We have, we have a few basic clients. Client number one is the one Harvey was discussing the client who has currently taxed inefficient investments, investments that are exposed to income taxes, which won't change in the new administration. Uh, they'll only get worse, but somebody who has investments that their investment advisor is buying and selling, and they're paying high current tax on those investments. That's an ideal client to put investments into this structure. What we've done with private mortality coverage is we've opened the market to the very wealthy families and individuals who are looking to do legacy planning and pass large amounts of wealth to future generations. Never before has pure death benefit, life insurance, been available at such a low cost and paid for with the pre-tax earnings of your investment. So, as Harvey previously said, this is the best way to buy large amounts of life insurance paid for with pre-tax dollars. And our capacity, Greg, as you mentioned, is about five times that of our previous competitors. And lastly, 
the private placement structure is something that is watched and monitored. Are there costs in that? Yes. A, a client needs to set up an LLC. Client, we always recommend, should set up an irrevocable trust to hold this. So there is a, a legal cost, not insurmountable. It's, it's you know, it's, it's that of doing some basic legal work. And after that point, there are administrative costs and fees that amount to maybe 100 basis points and going down to maybe 70 or 80 basis points over time. So that's the annual drag on the policy. But if you look at paying 70 basis points versus, which is about 7%, versus paying ordinary income of 35, 40, 45, 50%, the costs and fees of a private placement are a small fraction of paying traditional tax. Well, I'd like to thank my guests today, Brian and Harvey and my colleague, Justin, for an excellent discussion of the opportunities presented by private placement life insurance, especially between now and December 31st of 2020, as we are living in the uncertainty of the uh, election. Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying the only two things that are certain in this life are death and taxes. And we do know what the tax exemptions are. And unfortunately, we all also know that at some point, whether in the next 20 or 30 years, uh, we will meet uh, our demise and, and meet with our maker. But aside from that, there are planning opportunities between now and then. And I certainly recommend to any of our listeners that should they have an interest in executing a structure such as we've described here, please feel free to contact my colleague Justin, Harvey or Brian or me, and we would be happy to discuss with you how private placement life insurance might be of assistance for you in your estate planning and income tax planning objectives. Thank you for your attention. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.